Welcome back. I'm Kim Bailey. She's for the Honor Osborne and this is Inside Exec. We're continuing our discussion with Nancy Giordano and in this session we're going to talk about the difference between leadership and leadering, which is the title of Nancy's book. The first question that we sent you was about what has changed about your own leadership philosophy over the years, which I think we probably covered. So we'll do a quickie pitch for leadering because I really do think this concept of why yes. I named it like leadership is the way I described before, right? In the industrial era that we built a certain set of um, practices or not practices, but like a playbook, almost like a very much an approach that was designed again for consistency and, cons and a consistent scale and growth, very short term, quarter after quarter, month after month, year after year, you measure things in small increments. And if we're moving into a world now that is, is changing so fast because of these technologies that I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, but these technologies are coming in and really redesigning and reshaping every single industry and I would argue societal construct, then we have to be in a position to sense and respond more effectively and quickly. And that old world doesn't work. My hypothesis is that we should move from a noun to a verb. Right. Right? We're not in a position of leadership. We are literally all across the organization leadering, which is dynamic and inclusive and caring and really focused on being able to iterate and experiment and again, sense and respond effectively so that we can create long-term value. Mm. So we're flipping it from long-term R&D to ensure short-term success to quick okay. experiments to ensure long-term viability and value creation. So I do think that my head has really shifted around that. And what does that mean to be in a posture of leadering and developing a set of practices instead mm -hmm. of a playbook that we follow. That's great. One of our biggest and most popular series that we have is about core values for organisations and communicating those core values. So should we be saying to our listeners that they need to now look at their core values and how they communicate them and to start thinking about the verb rather than the noun? I definitely think so. I mean, the, the tricky thing about core values that we're also finding is that the flip side, right, is that we want everyone to think the same way when they come in and uh, adhere to these core values. And we use them then as a way of potentially not having as much diversity in our teams as we need. So I do think values are really important. And we certainly saw during this past year and a half that companies that had their values clearly articulated and were able to communicate them, to your point, were much better prepared for remote work than the ones that were not, and we're working much more functionally as opposed to across a way of working and toward a mission, right? A purpose was also really critical to folks' success. Yeah, I do think that we should be thinking about everything in a much more dynamic, fluid way and not be so rigid about anything. So I don't know if curiosity needs to be turned into a verb as much as it is we need to recognize that that is actually a really critical value right now and incentivizing curiosity, not just holding you responsible for it, but thinking as an organization again, how do I incentivize our collective curiosity? How do I incentivize your individual curiosity? I can't tell you how many times organizations want people to be curious and to be uh, you know, initiative driven and have all this. And then someone asks to go to a conference and they say no, or <laughs> they ask if they can you know, take on an assignment in another department, no, or if they can yeah. talk to somebody about someone, so no, like there's a lot of yeah. like no's that get put in place and that then people stop asking. Right? They yes. just shut down. And that's why engagement goes down, which is why we see those numbers so low mm. about why people are disengaged in their work. They're like, all right, if you don't want me to bring mm. my brain to it, then I just won't. Mm. And the fact is we need people to be able to do that right now. So if turning things into verbs gets people more engaged, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. You've written the book. We'll leave the links at the bottom of the podcast so people can, can get the copies for themselves. What led you to actually putting it in print to, to write it down? <laughs> You know, it's an interesting process because, uh, again, I'm a strategist first, and then I also then got invited to give more talks about where the world is going and how I built a strategic 
a solution on top of a set of understanding of how the world is shifting and changing. And what I realized is as I was doing that strategic work, there was a way in which we did that strategic work. We brought a kind of thinking and even to the biggest corporations, we got to work with, you know, the Nestle's of the world and the Coca-Cola's of the world and big huge restaurant organizations and telecommunications and whatever. It was a very extraordinary to be invited into these conversations, but they were still coming at it from a very rigid, very, I would call it almost allopathic, like you, call, you only fix one little piece of it and don't realize how it's connected to everything else. And you wonder why it doesn't work. And so there it was sort of getting in the way was that there was a way in which we did things that people didn't fully understand. Some of it was very, very successful when it worked, it really worked. And when it didn't, it's because there was a lack of understanding. And so I just spent more time trying to figure out how to explain the process that we followed to people because it was really intuitive and um, giving more talks around the world. And what I realized is that I was becoming more, as things were changing, right? My understanding was getting deeper. And so my talks couldn't get fitted all in. So I started feeling badly if I gave even a 60 minute keynote and I left a piece out, invariably somebody would ask me about that piece after I'm like, I know, I didn't have time. So I felt like if I wrote it all down and actually what was interesting in doing the research for the book, then it actually became much more dense than we even expected it to be. And I'm told it's a very chewy read, take your time with it. But is that I, I can go and speak on only chapters three, six, and nine and not feel I've left you hanging mm -hmm. by not giving you all the information. So it was a good way of being able to give myself some space. And to your point about, you know, attention span, there's a reason your podcast is a certain length because there's only so much time we have now to continue taking in more information and mm -hmm. giving longer and longer keynotes was not going to be the solution. So giving it to people in a way in which we could take bites of it and digest it as we're ready seemed to be a, a more compassionate <laughs> way to try and share this information. <laughs> With a lot of those books, when you do the first one, you realize that there's a follow-up one. Is there a follow-up one in your head? I think so, because there's two, I'm kind of going in, in either direction and we'll see in the next two years where it goes. One is really around artificial intelligence and how to build transformative cultures that are able to really use this technology effectively. You know, there's a strategic piece to it. There's an actual build the algorithm piece to it, but it really does change organizations when you bring this kind of probabilistic technology that does often augment, if not replace some of the current structures and roles that we currently have inside organizations. And so there's a lot of pushback sometimes around the success because people are so worried individually that they won't be able to thrive in that environment. So subconsciously or consciously, they sabotage the success of something. So I think there's a lot of work and I work with an artificial intelligence company. This is the role that I, I play there. And so helping organizations better prepare for the, the human side of these mm -hmm. transitions is, is one way. Um, but there's also really big, huge systemic things that are going to shift and change. Like I once laughed, I wrote down that the 10 ideas for a dangerous woman, but there's like, like if I explain to you like what education could look like in the future or what financial services could look like in the future, what does that even mean? When we start talking about the world of crypto or we talk about reinventing the internet or we think about completely restructuring what work means. Like these are big concepts that in my world, I spend time thinking about. And that I think that if we could see what I could see that people would feel less scared about where it is that we're headed. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to figure out if there's a way that I can paint that picture more tangibly for people. So I'm excited about potentially diving into that one. You use the word scared of those concepts. Could it not be very exciting when you talk? I feel totally. excited by the thought of it's bigger, it's more. I'm technologically very challenged, but I love what technology does. And even the little I know and, and what's coming um, is very, very exciting. I think it's very exciting for people who are less afraid of change and who are very confident again in their own value and what they create on the planet. And they believe in our, our sort of our better angels that we're going to design this in a way that holds people well. 
I think mm-hmm. where people get scared is when they feel any one of those things is threatened. Either we'll build a technology in a way that doesn't really consider humans and our, yeah. you know, our overall safety and well-being well enough. That's one thing that scares me. When I think about the fact that I'll be left out and I will somehow be included in the mm-hmm. productivity gains or in whatever it is yeah. that happens next. And so I want to hold on to what it is that I've got, or I just don't trust that when the conditions change around that I'll be able to uh, that I've got the capacities to adapt. And that's a lot of what the book talks about. It talks a lot about change, but leadering really is a set of practices that allow us to have confidence. And so another analogy that I use is instead of having a well-worn map that we keep going back to, that we feel like we can trust, we actually are now going to orient with a compass and a North star. And when you have a compass and anything that comes your way, you're going to be able to make sense of Mm-hmm. And that's what we're trying to give people the confidence to do so that to your point, they can find the mm-hmm. optimism in it, the excitement in it. If we really do have this opportunity to redesign, rethink and reshape everything around us at this moment in time, we have all been gifted that responsibility, if you will, and that opportunity, yeah. like how extraordinary is that, yeah. right? Don't we want to do it in a way that is more fair, that is yeah. less damaging to the planet, that is more inclusive, yeah. that creates less divides, that actually keeps everyone feeling safe and happy. I am utopian enough to believe that that is very, very possible and right within our grasp right now, if we make the decisions that orient us that way. But if we keep bringing, again, a fear lens or a uh, must have me, you know, take care of me lens and Mm or ROI short-term delivery lens, then we have a potential to actually create, I actually think pretty significant damage moving forward. So I'm trying to thwart that possibility. So all of that is based on being able to communicate in the appropriate manner with the noise that commotion that is out there in terms of communication and how people get their information, what's the path to clear that noise and and to have the North Star for them to find? Well, you know, I gave a talk, a TEDx talk recently to a bunch of college students. And one of the things we talked about is how fearful they are. When you really talk about fear, that's actually where it's rooted right now. We see a lot of anxiety in under 25. And because again, they're in a world that has such echo chambers and just keep saying the same thing over and over again. And the way I explained it to them is incentivized to scare them, right? So whether it's the news media, which has been that way forever, but certainly the social media industry is that way. I would argue even incumbent industries, because if you're an incumbent player and there's a new technology that's going to come and disrupt you, you're going to try and figure out how to discredit that new technology one way or another, because you that, you know, you're not prepared for it. So whether it's people who worry about plant-based meats, not being safe, or they worry yeah. about 5g technology, whatever it is, they're designed to scare you into thinking the new mm-hmm. solution is not going to be good for you. So being prepared for the fact that these things are all working and have a financial incentive to do so. Right. I actually don't distribute any of my content on Facebook. I don't do interviews that are posted on Facebook. I'm, I've, you know, my one little lone wolf in this whole world because I think their business model is so corrosive and, and they, they know it. I mean, there's plenty of MIT research that's been done in just in the last month around the fact that they could correct the algorithm so that they were less divisive. But when they do that, then growth goes down. And Mark Zuckerberg is so focused on growth that he will not let that happen. And so they continue to push algorithms that pull us apart. So I would argue healthier technologies, right? So social media isn't the culprit. It's the business model that was put on top of it. And so my friends are building a a new way of structuring the internet that would allow for a different kind of social media technology that would be able to perform that allows us to connect with one another and and, and really incentivizes our greater instincts to be connected versus incentivizes our, our fear and our desire to be excited and push each other away. I think that there's a whole way in which we can continue. Outrage. You have to be outraged. If you're on Facebook, you have to be outraged. Because again, you are rewarded for being outraged. 
right? And so, and, send, and so it's addictive in that way. And especially again, if we're moving into a culture where people feel really lonely, they feel dislocated, they feel scared of what's coming next. And these just prey on all of those insecurities mm. and all of those fears and, and they make money doing it, significant yeah. amounts of money. If you look at the average, I forgot there was a stat that Facebook uses like average revenue per user kind of a thing. Um, and it's grown from $6 to $24, right? There's a, re- that number grew because more and more people were invested in, in propagating that kind of vitriolic mm. Uh, content. So I think that that's, you know, one answer to, so one is being more literate and understanding that you're being manipulated. The second is trying not to be on platforms and try not to do business with the companies that um, support those. I have a lot of friends that I try and bully into not advertising in that way. And, but we're also in an environment where there's such a monopoly. So the if I don't do Facebook and Instagram, then what am I left with? And so if we can try and break up some of the power that exists inside those structures that give us more choices and we can make more informed and hopefully healthier choices about where we want to support with our content or advertising dollars, I think that will go a long way. The thing that's encouraging to me is when you do talk to some of the younger folks, they actually are a bit more savvy around what is, and excuse my language, but what's bullshit, right? They're able to catch some of that much more quickly than we are. They process way faster than we do, right? They skip through commercials faster. They play video games faster. They get content faster. And so they are less prey actually to some of that than older folks are. So that encourages me. You know, in the United States, when um, it was formed back in the day, there were two uh, very strong political candidates, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, that had completely opposing views on how the country should be set up. And they used to write these pamphlets anonymously to try and sway public opinion and distribute them via paper, you know, to the communities. And uh, it took a while for people to realize like what was real and what was not real. So I feel like these kinds of misinformation campaigns have existed across time. We've yeah. just gotten better at being able to, to root it out. Yes. I will say, on the other hand, you've got more technology now that will make it easier and easier to falsify right? Yes. This kind of thing, whether it's deep fake or synthetic media or being and mm. even a research study, like what is really like trust the research when we don't really know if that's really you know, real science or not. So we're going to have to find again, more sophisticated ways of being able to, to test for that. At this point, I think we should take a break from this discussion. Join us for part three of our talk with Nancy Giordano about leadership, leadering and strategic futurists. I'm Kim Bailey. She's Fulian Rosborn. This is Inside Exec. <laughs> 